we have a, um, what I think is a treat today. Um, first of all, uh, welcome. And uh, even before um, we start, just reflect for not a full nine minutes, but reflect on the events of the last couple of weeks in Minneapolis and, and elsewhere. And, um, and we'll all, I think, uh, commit ourselves to, to doing better in the, in the future. So the, the program today is, uh, is, a, is a unique one for IAS USA because we've done a lot of educational programs over the years. Um, but what we're gonna do today is um, uh, we think educational, but in a, in a different way and, and really in a conversational format. Um, we have a, a spectacular um, uh, uh, person joining us, a true expert in, uh, in this area. Um, I, I would say that um, uh, George Rutherford, who's our, uh, who's our uh, panel today, um, is, a, is a really a seriously deep expert in uh, pediatric uh, infection uh, and infectious disease epidemiology. Um, uh, we will not be talking about clinical management of COVID-19, uh, but we will be talking uh, a lot, I hope, about the natural history, the, the controversies surrounding testing and how, how we and the world have responded to the, to the pandemic. So George is a professor of epidemiology and biostatistics uh, at the University of California, San Francisco, uh, where I'm also um, uh, uh, employed part-time. Uh, and what we uh, would like to do is, uh, is jump in. What we'll do is talk for about 40 minutes about um, some of the questions that I've been uh, thinking about. We've all learned so much in the past few months. Um, and then at the end, what we'd like to do is uh, try to save about 20 minutes uh, for, uh, for questions and answers from, uh, from, the, from the audience. Uh, we have a, a system of, of where you can ask your question uh, uh, we have staff that will be kind of helping uh, give those to me, and I'll pass the ones on to ones, ones on to George. I'm sure we won't be able to get to um, uh, any uh, large fraction of the questions that people will have, but um, but stay tuned, and uh, I think we'll uh, hope to do you know, some other of these conversations um, again. Uh, so, uh, George, welcome to the um, welcome to the webinar. Thanks, Paul. And you can now see uh, the audience can see us. Um, I think they can also see the the, uh, the window at IAS USA uh, in in San Francisco with the big uh, uh, notice at the top of uh, thank you, Dr. Fauci. And I think we're not, I'm not going to ask George. I don't think about uh, about Tony, but um, uh, it's it's been interesting uh, watching how how important he's been um, in the response to this uh, to this epidemic. George, okay, so you have been on the road. You, I think maybe it's you and Ashish Jha, <laughs> some others uh, who have become, uh, you know, overnight experts in this, uh, in this uh, group of viruses. Um, and I think I'd like to start by, by having you spend a few minutes, um, and I think it deserves it, to talk about the various testing uh, platforms. Um, we know that there are antigen tests. Uh, we think of those as being somehow related to infectiousness um, or symptomatic states. 
Uh, we've also heard uh, a lot about uh, antibody tests, um, and we think about those typically as a marker of infection or a marker of immunity. Um, can you kind of help uh, set the record straight on, on those two broad uh, variety of tests and, and what, what a clinical audience should really, uh, should really understand? Yeah, so, so thanks, and thanks very much for having me, Paul and Don. Sure. It's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so pay attention to, to PCR testing post. Uh, PCR testing is um, if the virus is present, it will detect it. There are some window period problems with PCR testing and the, and the likelihood of, of um, not having a positive test when in fact you're infected, but not yet shedding virus. Um, and typically the, that window period is three days, but it may be as long as seven or eight days. Um, there was a very recent paper in Annals that, uh, um, that, that talked about the negative predictive value of the test and it, it had minimized it around seven to eight days. So, so let me just interrupt, George. So, so you're saying from at the time of exposure until infection is several days, or no, from, from the time of from the time of exposure to the time that you're able to detect virus, right? By PCR is usually three days. That's the that's a kind of round number. Right. A median of five days incubation period from infection to onset of symptoms, uh, and uh, you typically start to shed a couple of days earlier. Now, those are all medians, so if you want to really have kind of the highest yield, you're probably talking seven, or the least chance of having a false negative, you're probably talking seven, eight days, but I say three days is the answer that I always give to that question, understanding there is some, there is some variation in it. So PCR is great, and one of the things we're learning about, about PCR that I hope we're going to start employing more of is to pay attention to the cycle, uh, cycle times and the thresholds. Um, right now, we cycle it, you know, 40 times before we call it negative. And a lot of these things you hear about people who test positive, then negative, then positive, then negative, they're right around 39 as their, as their cycle time. So rather than thinking of them as intermittent shedders, think of them as kind of flirting at the edge of, of non-detectable. And some days that they're detectable and some days they're not. So the, just, to, just to kind of orient all of us. So the more it's not it's not that the like more cycles are more virus it's more cycles is less virus so the Correct. fewer cycles it takes to find it right that implies that you have more virus right right it's like you know it's like golf right so low low is low is good if you're the virus and, and high is bad um if you're the virus for the humans it's the other way or it's the other way around um so you know, one of the things we're starting to pay attention to and, and trying to latch onto a little bit more are cycle times for things like contact tracing. See if we can predict people who are the most infectious, who have the most virus. Um, so if you have like a cycle time of five or six or seven or eight, you might have 10 to the 10th particles in your anterior nares or in your- So, so uh, again, I'll interrupt to say, ask whether we know enough about the so-called super spreaders. Are those people with um, high viral loads? Is it like HIV? Is it the more virus, the light, more likely you are to spread it? I, I don't know that we know that as a fact, but I think it's certainly smart money would say that. Um, and so, you know, one of the things, so if you think of syphilis, you think of, of, of people who have, um, who are dark field positive for syphilis who are being really infectious, 
that's the same kind of thing, that these are people are really, we think they're really infectious, so that they become the priorities for contact tracing. Got it. For interviewing and contact tracing. So that's nasopharyngeal swabs. Um, there is an EUA now for nasal swabs, anterior nasal swabs only, but just for people who are symptomatic. Um, and for those of you who remembered having a nasopharyngeal swab, if you haven't had one lately, you know, they're, they're not the world's most comfortable thing to have, but it's, you know, it's not the end of the world. You know, as a pediatrician, I do lots of, I used to do lots of them. Right. And yeah, it always made them cry just to, yeah. just to fill, fill in the blank there. Because um, you do it for pertussis. It's, it's, the, how, you, it's how you get the uh, uh, material for pertussis diagnosis. Anyway, be that as it may. So that's the gold standard for, for diagnosis. Uh, although the Chinese are very fond of lung CT scans as, a, right. as another gold standard for, uh, for diagnosis. Um, the um, uh, antibody testing is okay. Um, you know, the market flooded with something like 90 different antibody test platforms in a week uh, when FDA was, was accelerating uh, things by basically stamping everything that went by. Um, and it's taken quite a while to, to, for that to, to sort out. Um, antibodies don't become positive. They don't become measurable until 11, 12, 13 days post-infection. Um, so it's, it takes a while to get an antibody test positive. And so they're, I think, of limited clinical utility acutely to make an acute diagnosis. Although you can imagine somebody going to an OR and they might have, they might be beyond the edge of, beyond the time when they're, uh, when they might be nasal uh, uh, NP swab positive, and you can find the antibodies, and you know they might have been recently infected. Anyway, there might be some clinical use for it, um, but the the larger use is for me in terms of seroepidemiology and being able to understand how many people have been infected and what the patterns and distributions of disease are. They're also helpful if you know someone has been infected, and they have antibodies to start trying to figure out sort out who's a, um, uh, who has a high titer neutralizing antibody for purposes of plasma freezing off uh, antibody for um, uh, convalescent plasma therapy. George, what do we know about um, those people um, that have neutralizing antibodies uh, in terms of their risk for reinfection? We've heard various things during this yeah. whole pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's up in the air. It's, it, we don't know, I personally know of no cases of reinfection. You know, there are these people who had sort of intermittently shed Korea. They were on the Theodore Roosevelt in Guam. Um, but I think that's much more likely to be ex explainable by, um, by the fact that they have uh, low titers and you're just kind of amplifying small fragments of RNA and it's not correlated necessarily with viable virus. And, and George, oh. with, um, with HIV, we know that there are... Um, there's a lot of talk about uh, replication competent virus versus non-replication uh, yeah. competent. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but I guess it's a, kind of a damaged virus in some sense. Do we do we see the same thing with uh, with this virus? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not it's not necessarily damaged; just pieces of it left behind. Um, I explained it to my one of my uh, kids who was asking me. It's like, you know, you go out on a uh, you uh, you go over to a uh, to some after work party and you come back with a long blonde hair on your blue blazer. What exactly does that mean? It means that somebody who owned that long blonde hair was you know was around once. So it's like it's it wasn't me. Yeah, it wasn't you. I know that. Yeah, I actually knew Paul when he had brown hair. So it's just, 
as he did as he knew me. Um, it, it's it, it's just a piece, you know. It's just a piece that's hanging around. Um, that we we have such sensitive technology that we can amplify it. Um, that we can amplify it up. Right, right. There's one good study uh, that was done in Germany, where they looked at both PCRs and and tried to culture virus at the same time, and they were unable to culture virus eight days after after symptom onset. Um, and that's the one best study we have um, to that that looks at. It's also a small study, but it's not. You know, this stuff gets I, I'm uh, gets uh, um, gets dealt with at, at biosafety three at biosafety level three. Uh, so it's not like everybody's setting up labs willy nilly to to grow it and stuff. But that's the one thing we 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 know. So antibodies, you know, those are the uses of antibody. Now the next question is: Does antibody having antibodies equal immunity? Right. So what I can tell you is that some portion of people who have clinical disease and positive PCRs and recover have no measurable antibody. That's as much as maybe 10 to 20% of people. This is after the hospital course. There are also a small number of people, probably less than 5%, who have very high titers of neutralizing antibody. Those are the ones they're looking for 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 plasmapheresis, and then everybody else is in between. Um, with is that some, unusual, George? Are there other other infections that don't uh, lead to a, uh, an antibody response? Uh, there are uh, there are, are infections. A lot of respiratory epithelial infections don't lead to particularly robust antibody responses, um, like the alpha coronaviruses, uh, for instance. You know, just because they don't get into necessarily right. get into the bloodstream and pump up. Um, you know, IgG. So, I mean, we're not, we're not looking for IgA. I mean, we do look, look for all antibody, but unless you're fractionating out IgA, it's going to be hard to, hard to really tell. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think the other thing to, to say is, you know, so they, we don't know how protective that antibody is that people have, and we don't know how durable it is. Um, and so those are big questions that are being asked. With now, a lot of implications for vaccine development. Obviously. Massive implications for vaccine development. Now, the other thing is, though, I mean, don't forget this is still circulating a lot, and in fact, more than it ever has all over the country. And so people are coming into contact, so people who've been, who have antibody are coming into contact with it again and again and again, and they may be getting naturally boosted um, as well, you know, which is why, like, small in the, you know, in the 19th century and early 20th century, smallpox vaccine worked so well because people are getting naturally boosted all the time. Right. Now, when we give it to the military, it's always sort of a you know, crapshoot if they can really, if it's really gonna work or not. So I think you're gonna see some, there probably is some natural boosting. We're putting a study together that's gonna go into the field next week with healthcare workers and we'll follow people who, are, who be, develop infection uh, for it to look at, the, at their evolution of their antibody responses, but also follow them over time to see if they get reinfected. I mean, that's the most likely population to get reinfected. George, another direction I'd like to I'd like you to uh, take us is this controversy. It's been around a while, but it's been hot again in the last couple of days um, after the WHO comments. Yeah. Um, what do we know about uh, asymptomatic transmission? How likely, if if you're on a on a bus and people aren't symptomatic. Um, What's your risk? Is it is it less? Uh, what is the likelihood of a person that's asymptomatic transmitting this virus? So talk about that and talk about the controversy in the last couple of days. Sure. Um, 
I think that the, um, so, so to start with, there's some conflation between people who are truly asymptomatic throughout the entire course of, of, the, of the infection versus people who are pre-symptomatic, right. where you're catching in this, in this early period before they develop symptoms of a couple of days. Um, and what, uh, the, the, what WHO was talking about, it's actually one person at WHO, uh, was talking about where people who are asymptomatic throughout the entire duration of their illness. And I think in kind of public health practice, we think of people, think of asymptomatics, people don't have any symptoms at that moment in time, which is a lot more common. There are two big reviews that have come out that estimate the prevalence of true asymptomatic infection at somewhere between, one estimates it at 15% and the other estimates it at 40 to 45%. These are uh, systematic reviews that take studies that actually have follow-up, so you really know if they develop symptoms or not. Um, and you know, I think that those that gives you kind of a rough feel. Um, I usually say around 40% are are, um, are are truly asymptomatic. What I really should be saying is that on any given day, 40% of people are are truly asymptomatic, and maybe another 20 are mildly symptomatic. So mildly symptomatic, they don't show up for or work. Are people who are asymptomatic less likely to transmit on a per person basis and a per exposure uh, basis? Yeah, probably. They probably have lower titers of virus, so that means they have higher cycle times on PCR. Um, that's the literature on that's very mixed right now, but I'm just I'm guessing. Um, are they important for transmission? They're hugely important for transmission because they're so many more of them out walking around, you know, people who are sick are staying home, so they're not exposing other people. And in Wuhan, before they really understood what was going on, um, they estimated, the estimates are that 79% of transmission was due to people who are asymptomatic at the time they transmitted. But remember, asymptomatic people can become symptomatic as well as stay asymptomatic the entire time. Um, and they'll shed throughout their, uh, throughout their illness, at least until you know, whatever the eight days or however it works out. So, George, I, I'm sure you remember, uh, we, we were both at a meeting at the university and uh, the announcement was made to um, start working from home. And the, the proposal was start working from home at the end of that week. And I remember you exploding and saying, why the hell would we wait? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, we, should, we should do it now. Well, because somebody was doing a study, I think, but, you know. But I think that really woke me and others up to kind of the seriousness of this. And so you obviously have thought a lot about sheltering in place. Um, but, but talk about um, what we've learned, um, what has worked, um, what's, the, what's the evidence that it's worked, and compare that with what we might be moving towards, which feels like less sheltering uh, and more mask uh, use. Yeah. But just talk about that some. So um, I don't know if you um, have read this uh, guy whose last name is uh, Puello or P Puello or something. I can't, it's, it's, I want to say Puello, but that's somebody I went to medical school with. <laughs> uh, and he talks about the hammer and the dance. And, you know, Paul, you're an oncologist, obviously. And, you know, this is about kind of debulking and then, you know, or, or you know, the, kind of the big whack and then, and then maintenance therapy. Um, the big whack is shelter in place for which, you know, I mean, there's, there's some evidence that it's, uh, I mean, there's a lot of evidence that it's worked. Um, 
it's uh, a, a little unclear how much, um, you know, how much is really going to stand up to the scrutiny of, say, the Cochrane collaboration or, uh, you know, people like that. Um, but it's, sorry, I just had to extend my computer, giving you an idea of when I get up in the morning to, to, to start. Right. So, um, but I, I think it's, um, uh, my favorite uh, graph are these two almost contiguous um, states, in a region, uh, provinces in Italy. One's Bergamo and the other is a town called Lodi. And they're not totally contiguous. They're, they're you know, they're about 60 miles apart, I think, as I look at the map. Um, but um, Lodi was the place where the first super spreader showed up in the ED in, uh, in Italy. And he, um, and they, so they infected 35 people on the first night. And the, um, uh, the government went to sh shelter in place very early. In Bergamo, they went to shelter in place about two weeks later. And the difference in the curves is just astounding. The Lodi curve is sort of kind of flattened and the Bergamo cur curve is, you know, kind of up off the edge of the graph. So being nothing but competitive, I put, even though I did grow up a Dodgers fan, I have to say, I put the San Francisco and Los Angeles on the, on the same, uh, did the same thing. Uh, Los Angeles went to shelter in place four days after San Francisco, but the, their first day of shelter in place was a Friday and, and it was like people really didn't get the memo until Monday. Right. Um, and so it was kind of business as usual on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it's almost seven days later, six, seven days later. And it looked just like Bergamo and, and Lodi. Um, and there was a big difference. And if you could do a Bay Area wide versus Southern California, same thing. Um, now we're starting to get models, uh, people who are modeling this um, that, and estimating the numbers of, uh, of cases that have been averted. Uh, there was a, uh, some people from the public policy school at Berkeley um, that just published uh, in, I think, Nature Medicine. I can't remember exactly where. And they were estimating the numbers of, uh, you know, the tens of thousands of cases averted in six countries. Um, so we're getting some better modeling of, uh, of that from shelter in place. But I think you have to kind of walk away and say it made a huge difference. It made a giant difference in Wuhan where this was just going to go out of control. Um, so I think we're pretty clear on that. Now, the other thing is, and, and this was, you know, I mean, and different states did different things. There'll be a million doctoral dissertations that will follow from this over the next 50 years that will compare this state to that state or this region to that region based on when they went to shelter in place relative to the, to the, um, uh, to the, to the background, to when the infection started to, to spread. This isn't rocket science. Um, I sat, was sitting in a, an early March, I was sitting in a meeting in the um, director of public health, um, with the director of public health in San Francisco. And both my counterpart, Art Rheingold at Berkeley and I, both brought up St. Louis in 1918. Uh, and the lessons of St. Louis, which did really well, was that A, you need to go to these very restrictive measures very early on. If you wait to start accumulating deaths, it's gonna be way too late. Um, and the second thing is, is that if you stop them too early, you'll get a rebound. And I'm afraid that's what we're gonna see around yeah. the country that we've stopped them uh, too early. Now, do masks work? Masks are huge. Um, but just remember that masks are about source control. So I wear a mask in case I have asymptomatic infection 
or pre-symptomatic infection or mild infection. Um, and um, it's to protect the people around me. I've, I've I, heard that, George, and I, I believe it, but I've also heard that masks might actually play a role in protecting one if, uh, if yeah. you're exposed to the virus. Yeah, and you know, it, say, just in terms of, if you want round numbers, these are very round numbers, a, a mask will cut down the probability of transmitting out from you by 90%. If you have a mask on, it'll cut down your probability of acquiring infection by maybe 30%. And that's because your eyes aren't covered, right? Unless you're like us and have to wear glasses every, all the time. Um, it's, you know, because the respiratory, uh, kind of the conjunctivia part of the respiratory epithelium. Um, so I, I think they give you some break. And I have a daughter who's a, um, a counselor in, in uh, for sort of special ed kids in, in Alameda County. And they have to go to these meetings in these sort of small rooms and God knows where these kids have been, right? Right. And she says, well, what am I supposed to do? And I said, well, you can wear both a, a, a regular face mask and then wear an N95 over it, right? It's not, you know, you want, the N95 protects you from getting infected. The face mask protects them from getting infected. There are some being designed that they have both, you know, you get sort of two-way protection, but those are kind of still off on the, on the drawing board. Well, they may be around by now, I'm sorry, but. I've been wondering about masks with a hole in the middle for a straw so you could go into a bar without taking off your mask, but. So the Navy has those, okay. <laughs> um, and they, they, they have these really cool ones because people have to wear them 24 hours a day. They have to sleep with them on in these ships when they in these big outbreaks. And they have straws that come up, uh, they come up through here, straw holes. And they also have microphone jacks so that if you're an officer, you can yell at everybody. Um, you know, good, there, good, there's good. some things to be said. George, the, um, something that we've also heard about in the last week or so, I think, are estimates on the, I want to talk about natural history in, in a minute um, too, but we've heard that young children, um, we know they can get infected, we know they can get these unusual inflammatory conditions, but we've heard that they're less likely to be infected and less likely to transmit. Um, and it seems to me that given the problems that we're facing with no daycare and no um, uh, preschool, no uh, early elementary school, mm -hmm. that if we knew that kids couldn't or wouldn't likely transmit, that might allow us to change our policies. You want to talk about young kids, your pediatrician. With, with six kids, too. So. Yeah, and your wife's a pediatrician. So. <laughs> Which is why we have six kids. It's one of those risk groups, you know. Um, the, the evidence base for this is about that big, okay? So, you know, take everything I say with a grain of salt. Um, the, the evidence from China was that very few clusters had a child as the index case. They were almost always at sort of the end of uh, end of transmission, where somebody brought it, it into a family group, and then it got transmitted around, and eventually got to the little kids. Um, there's also uh, there have also been school uh, school outbreaks that have been worked up, and those have all been in high schools. There's a, a large ongoing outbreak now in in Israel in high school among high school students. And so out of the blue, a group from I think Mount Sinai in New York who was an asthma group, had all these biopsies of nasal epithelium across the lifespan from fetal tissue all the way through to uh, older people. And 
what they could measure, and then they measured ACE, the prevalence, the, you know, the expression of ACE2 inhibitors across all that spectrum. And they found that it was, uh, that, the, uh, that the expression of ACE2 inhibitors was very low in fetal life, in infancy, in childhood, really up to about the time of puberty, and then it started to go up. And by the time you got to about 17, it was the same as it was among uh, adults. So that gives you a physiologic basis for why certain people, why littler kids may not be as ready transmitters. Now, having said all that, I think you'd be crazy to bet on it at this point in time. Um, I think you have to basically have some. His parents are really going uh, I can't crazy dealing with this issue of the kids yeah. at home and not yeah. in school. Well, I think they should go. I think you can go back to school. It may not be quite what you have in mind, but it's going to be something like that. There are huge socialization things. And little kids don't learn very well from the internet. Um, yeah. And it's, you know, I think for younger, for elementary schools, you could see like a morning, afternoon, or a Monday, Wednesday, Friday versus Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, somehow trying to get the instruction um, in, in a way where you have half the, half the classroom filled and uh, to the extent that they can wear them uh, wearing masks. I have a great picture of my granddaughter trying with me, two-year-old trying to, you know, their hand trying to pull her mask off and my mask off at the same time. Yes, so yeah. um, it's gonna be tough for little kids. And if it's under two, there's a suffocation risk. So you wanna yeah. stay away from that. Now, having said all that for, for elementary schools and probably for early middle school, once you get into high school, it's completely different different uh, kettle of fish. Um, and it's gonna be, you're gonna have to really be creative. And, and the whole idea is that you'd like small groups of students who are cohorted together. So if the infection gets into one group, it's not gonna spread widely. So what does that mean? You know, it means that you take, you know, some number of kids who have the same, roughly the same schedule, you plop them down in a room and the teachers rotate in and out, okay? Then if they're taking, you know, second year Chinese, that might have to be online or, you know, or something else, maybe either asynchronous or, or, or synchronous. So it's gonna, it's gonna be complicated and not necessarily very easy, very easy. Extracurricular activities are gonna be tough. I mean, clearly there are a few that you could pull off like golf or there maybe even tennis, uh, but, you know, choir, no, like no way, right? Um, it's all those, those, all those sorts of things are going to be hard to do, unfortunately. So another another topic that um, I know we're thinking about. So we're we're sitting here. We're st still in many cases, hopefully sheltering in place, staying at home. Um, but people, as we've heard, are getting antsy and are just breaking out anyway, um, and. And, and I think the challenge then is, um, are we just going to see this continue? Uh, what about the summer lull, if I can put quotes in the air? Um, yeah. You know, we think of flu as having a summer lull and then a right. fall spike. Do we know enough about this virus to predict um, whether those um, things are going to happen? No, we don't know enough to know that whether those are going to happen. What I can tell you, so we just had a paper accepted to JID that refused the Southern Hemisphere's experience um, with SARS-CoV-2 before it became fall there. 
and you know there are thousands of cases and you know there's not a lot of you know all this stuff about temperature and and this is going to go away because the temperature goes up you know it's you might get maybe a one or two percent decrease it's not going to be much the reason stuff goes away flu goes away in the summertime is because kids leave school right so they're no longer in school they're no longer amplifying it which is another reason why trying to figure out what's going on with elementary school children is so important they're huge amplifiers of of, of influenza a um, I've been and, told and what you said. What you said, we would guess that they're probably not huge amplifiers of of this virus. Guess, guess is the operant term here. Right, right. right. Um, but it's it would I would think that you know it's a bet I might take. So another thing that we've seen, um, obviously now, are these mass. Um, gatherings, whether it was Memorial Day in the pool at Lake of the Ozark or um, in the last couple of weeks, the, the huge protests where people are jammed yeah. together, usually without masks. Have we seen anything from that yet? And what would you, um, I can guess what you're going to guess, but give us some, some thoughts. I think we've seen uh, the consequences of Memorial Day. Um, there are big upticks in states like Arizona and Texas that are, you know, are very rapid and really look like point source exposures, which are from the Memorial Day weekend. And I got this, not to pick on Arizona, but I have this picture of a, a Memorial Day weekend in Scottsdale and it's a two-story bar that's jammed to the rafters, just right. jammed um, and, no, and not a single mask in sight, as you might imagine. Um, and that's, a, you know, there are gonna be consequences of those things. Now the marches, Okay, the marches are a little different because first of all, they're outdoors, okay, which makes a bit, which makes somewhat of a difference. And the second thing is, at least here, there are a lot of people wearing masks. Now, in Southern California, I realize it might be a little different, and in other places, it's different. Um, but um, we're uh, we haven't seen the bumps up yet, and that includes both in D.C. and Minnesota. The last time I looked, which was yesterday, um, so. You would expect to see cases, and remember when we talk about cases, we're talking about diagnosed cases. So people have to be sick enough to present for care, right? Typically, um, even though there is now CDC's recommended that people go get screened if they've been to the protests, but we're not seeing the cases yet. Um, we may see them go up soon. Smart money would say that they're going to go up eventually, um, but we just haven't seen it yet. Now, how much are they gonna go up? Masks give you a ton of protection if people have masks on, if the bulk of people have masks on. Um, but that includes the law enforcement people too. I mean, they're equally susceptible and equally likely to be, to be infected. Uh, it's the right age, it's the people who are asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic infection tend to be younger um, and not, not over 50. Um, so everybody's gotta have their masks on, right? Um, obviating against that is that there's no social distancing. Uh, people are chanting or, or you know, yelling or, or whatever. What we know is that singing is a dangerous activity and that can, there can be big spread events from singing. And so I think you'd have to extrapolate and say that's the case. And then finally, um, tear gas is a respiratory irritant. And we think of it as just irritating the eyes, but it irritates the entire respiratory tree and causes people to cough. So Coughing is bad. Coughing is gonna, is gonna, you know, X out a lot of the protective effect of masks. So 
you know, it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act for, for now. Um, I, Paul just, we got, I think, I, did we just lose you, Paul? That cat must have stepped on something. Um, so let me just keep, uh, um, uh, keep talking. I, one of the other questions that I get, keep getting asked is what's gonna, is there gonna be a second wave? And as I alluded to earlier, a second wave may be um, in, with influenza, so with the 1918 influenza, for example, there was an early spring wave, which was largely concentrated among the US military. Um, and when the troops went to, went to France, to England and France, they took the infection with them. It spread over Europe, it crossed the German, into the German lines and spread through Central Europe uh, as well. What we know from, um, from that was that, but after there, there was a sort of general subsidence. And then in starting in September, there was a second wave of infection, which was much worse than the, than the first with lots more cases. And then eventually in the spring, there was a third wave of infection uh, from, the, uh, uh, from the H1N1 um, uh, virus. So what do we know about transmission in, in that setting? What we know is that cities that went to social distancing earlier were much more likely to have blunted uh, second waves. And that includes uh, St. Louis is the, is the textbook example but also San Francisco, which probably had about a third of the predicted number of cases. As a port city, San Francisco was supposed to have a lot more cases, and it did, but they, we sort of gradually, meaning San Francisco, gradually went uh, to uh, more and more restrictive measures and eventually ended up with a mask ordinance uh, in October, in like, mid-October. Um, following that, uh, there was a lot of kind of push-pull. There was, you know, every talking head in the world would say masks are good, masks are bad. Um, you know, it's not salubrious. And, you know, this is when people believe that fresh air cured tuberculosis. So there's a lot of kind of climatotherapy stuff mixed up in this. Uh, but what we know is that eventually uh, on November 21st, the anti-mask ordinance was rescinded in San Francisco. At noon on November 21st, this is 10 days after Armistice Day, all the sirens blew and the whistles blew in the city and people pulled their masks off and threw them away. And the paper talks about how there was a sea of gauze masks all up and down uh, Market Street. And within two weeks, there had been 600 new cases of influenza. And by, um, and by, um, Oh, say by the end of February, there are probably 1,400 additional deaths, which would not have happened had they not rescinded the mask order prematurely. Uh, so there's a, um, there are consequences to ending these policies early. Um, and um, and, uh, uh, and we'll just see, we'll just have to see how it, how it goes, uh, I, I suspect. We're not really gonna see a true second wave. We're just gonna see the continuation of the first wave as we go forward um, uh, through the summer. And uh, for those of you who spent as much time in the Pacific Ocean as I have, you know that waves run off the back of each other. And so you get a waveform that looks like a wave, but then it's sort of a little dip and then there's another bigger wave behind it. And I think that's probably what we're going to be seeing, except maybe in places like New, Jersey, New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, which have had 
true up and down, uh, up and down waves. Paul, you back? Uh, George, we've lost Paul. We're trying to get him back. Um, oh, yeah, one... hi, George. Can you hear me? Yeah. Great. I'm sorry. I, I think I lost my uh, Zoom connection here at my house. Um, but I, I, I really appreciate what you've uh, what you've been uh, talking to us about. What I, I wanted to just um, have you spend a, a minute or two talking about some of the controversy surrounding the uh, the agencies that we've come to rely on the CDC and the WHO and, and they seem to be not making great uh, leadership um, strides. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And then after that, George, if I might interrupt, sorry, Paul cannot see the questions that have come in from the participants. So um, after you address that with that comment, maybe you can go into the Q&A button and take a look at some of the questions. Sure. That have come in. sure. So these are challenging times for CDC and WHO. Um, WHO is a, I think is a, is a real uh, excellent organization. It's been said it's funding cut so much over the years that we warn our medical students when we send there for, for rotations that they're going to be making copies. I mean, that's, that's basically what their role becomes. Um, it's so badly underfunded and it's been very demoralized uh, over the years. It probably has a third the number of people that it needs to have to do what it's charged with, uh, with doing. Added to that, there have been a lot of, um, there's a lot of internecine warfare among the, uh, the UN agencies, at least there was with HIV. And they finally had to form a new, whole new HIV um, program called the United Nations Special Program on AIDS and HIV or UNAIDS. Um, and then there's the global fund on top of that. So it's, you know, there's like some element of not being able to play nicely in the sandbox together. Um, but the U.S. has been kind of the leading the uh, death by a thousand cuts at, uh, at WHO. And in fact, a big chunk of their money comes from the Gates Foundation, uh, which I think has been viewed as I mean, it's obviously, you know, it's great to have the money, uh, but it gives the Gates Foundation a lot of uh, uh, influence at WHO, which is meant to be an organization of member states rather than private philanthropies. Um, on top of that, Dr. Tedros is a relatively uh, new director general. He's only been around since last May. Um, so there's a lot of kind of, you know, um, there's a lot of turmoil uh, there and it's not as effective as it could be, but that's kind of a, the structural thing that we've created, frankly. Um, CDC has been similarly demoralized over the years, um, starting in the Reagan administration uh, with um, non-career people largely coming in as, um, as directors of CDC uh, who, have, who may have some background um, but haven't um, really come up through the CDC system or even the U.S. Public Health Service uh, system. I'll remind you that Dr. Redfield is the second director of CDC uh, under President Trump. Um, the first one was a, a woman from Georgia, whose name I can't even remember, who was, um, who'd been uh, like maybe the state health commissioner in Georgia, but turned out had a ton of money in, in tobacco yep. stocks, or at least she, I mean, I think it was probably in blind trust, but she didn't know not to say that. And she ended up having to get squeezed out. So it's, um, you know, I, I think it's, you know, 
and they didn't do very well on this, um, quite frankly. And I think that it's, they have good connections with the Chinese CDC and helped build the Chinese CDC. By the time the Chinese CDC figured out what was going on, presumably, um, you know, Dr. Redfield tried to engage, but got shut out by the White House and wasn't forceful enough or, or whatever, didn't have enough allies to, to push the agenda. And then that screwed up the lab part. And it's just been catch up since then. Um, so I, I'm, you know, it's going to take, uh, it's going to take a long time to rebuild CDC. Lots of people have left. Right. Your city health department, however, in San Francisco is strong. Yeah, yeah. No, we've always been strong. So I'm sorry I was interrupted uh, in my Zoom connection here. Is that cat? Yeah, yeah. More than one. Chewing, um, on, the, chewing on the wires. <laughs> I, I think I'm back. Um, so um, Donna is going to be, and the staff are going to be giving me some uh, some questions, George, to, to pass on. I'll try to do as many as we can. Maybe let's try to be brief. Oh. Um, uh, go to the Q&A button. I've got it. Down at the bottom. I've Open that up. I've got it. Great. You should be able so, to see the questions in there. Right. So um, from CHRP uh, that we're talking about the sacrificing the few for the benefits of the many. Um, uh, comment uh, on that. Um, therefore, Lisa is asking whether we've sacrificed the benefits many for the benefit of the few. You want to talk about that? Well, I mean, it's a numbers game, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, you could say that there are, you know, 2.7, 2.2 million Americans we don't really need uh, who've paid their taxes and fought in the wars and, you know, built the economy and did everything else. And now, you know, the first day it gets tough, everybody dumps them. Um, that was what the uh, mortality estimates were in the first Imperial College models. Um, and I think we've done a remarkable job of. Are, are we moving back to that um, as a almost as a strategy? Um, are we? No, I don't think so. I, I think what we're moving back to is more of a, a model of individual accountability, um, and like by wearing masks and and maintaining social distancing. And I think that's a. It wouldn't have worked in the first place. Let me put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not. It's not. It's hard to, you know. It's not South Korea. It's not Taiwan. It's not Singapore. Uh, and we, you know, I mean, I think you could have, you might have been able to do more piecemeal shutdowns and, and not wreck the economy of Montana. Uh, but, you know, in most of these places, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to have this sort of big hammer blow of interventions, yeah. as I said, you know, like debulking the tumor and now trying to maintain the effective reproductive number as close to one as possible until we get vaccines. And vaccines are huge. And that's an important thing to bring up. We'll probably have some by. Uh, by early 2021. So one of the questions I have is um, uh, is one that I think we've all thought of as well. Uh, we, we had SARS back in the day. It was around for a while. It was scary for a while, and then it went away. Um, is this going to disappear like SARS? Do we know? Uh, I, I know we don't know yet, but what's your thought? It's hard to imagine with seven and a half million cases worldwide that it's going to completely disappear. SARS went away. SARS was largely a nosocomial disease. Yeah, yes, there were some weird things that happened, and yes, there was community transmission, but it was still largely a nosocomial disease. And so if you can control nosocomial transmission, you can control SARS. Uh, and in fact, there was an outbreak the following year of SARS, but it was in a viral virology lab in Singapore. Got it. Um, so. Also nosocomial. 
So, yeah, um, um, so this is a tough question. This is politics again, but that's where we are. Um, question about uh, vaccines and kind of how politically weaponizing um, the development is. Um, Got to get something out before the elections. Um, well, it ain't going to be there before the election, so don't don't worry about that too much. Um, five of the ten vaccines in trial are are Chinese. Right. But I guess that's off the table. Um, the uh, the U.S. has decided to back five vaccines in Operation Warp Speed. Um, this new vaccine push. Uh, Pfizer said no, thank you. So it's down to four. Uh, one is an mRNA vaccine. Uh, two are adenovirus uh, vaccines that are expressing the spike protein or the or the binding domain of the spike uh, protein. And one, which only uses the is is using uh, recombinant vesicular stomatitis uh, virus to express the binding domain. That's the only platform that has a that has been successfully used for another human vaccine, and that's for Ebola vaccine. Now, I, betting, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but um, both the Moderna mRNA vaccine and the uh, Oxford slash AstraZeneca um, adenovirus uh, vaccine uh, are in phase three trials. Um, the Oxford one is Oxford AstraZeneca has just started and the Moderna one will start in July. So we should have the answers pretty quickly given the rates of transmissions look like they're going right now. Although we won't know for a while whether there's any possibility of ADE or the, the enhancement of infection that might yeah. be the side effect of a vaccine. Right. So ADE is, a, I'm sorry, antibody de yeah. antibody dependent enhancement uh, is an issue. And that, like you get in dengue where you have one serogroup of dengue and then you get infected with a second serogroup of dengue and you get a much worse infection. There's some suggestion that that might be what the Kawasaki-like syndrome is in children. Um, and so we're going to have just have to see. Um, Got it. Believe me, you don't want to be the first person to get an mRNA vaccine. I would yeah. So, George, um, question about uh, screening tests. Uh, as a provider, patients are going to be asking, do you when do you use a, a screening test in somebody who's not symptomatic? Do you, do, you, do you do it always? Do you do it only in people that are on their way to a quarantine situation? Um, talk, talk a little bit about that. Uh, I, I think it, it's almost on demand. Uh, and that, that's what we're working to, working towards. And um, there's enough virus circulating that it's not unreasonable to have it um, basically uh, on demand for, uh, for nasal swabs, for PCRs. Um, I think that the antibody testing, um, every morning my wife wakes up and wants me to get her an antibody test because she's sure she had SARS. And I said, idle curiosity is not an indication for antibody testing. Um, but you, know, you can imagine how that goes over. Um, but it's, I, I think that we're moving to a point where PCR is really basically on demand. Yeah, it's hard to say no if somebody really wants a test. It's like and, HIV and, as well. And understand that the business of quarantine, if that's not determined by, it, it's secondarily determined by whether your test is positive or negative, but you a, have to be a close contact, a really close contact to warrant going into quarantine. Otherwise, everybody's gonna be in quarantine all the time. So George, um, uh, another George in the audience uh, wonders about herd immunity. We hear about this, yeah. um, and people are saying, "Let's just get herd immunity and let yeah. it let it, let it rip." Um, yeah. What are the best arguments against that, George? 
Well, to start with that, you know, with a certain proportion of people unknown not being immune after they're infected, herd immunity becomes a kind of, you know, it's a sort of difficult concept. We'll get herd immunity through vaccination. Herd immunity is the effective reproductive number minus one divided by the effective reproductive number. So if the effective reproductive number in this thing running rampant is four, so four minus one divided by four is 75%. That's what you'd have to get to in order to, to achieve it. In Sweden, uh, they've gotten to 7.3% in Stockholm, despite letting it all go and despite having a large number of deaths among the elderly. Because yeah, yeah. Sweden is, you know, people kind of spin it both ways. Um, yeah. They didn't have to shut down their economy, but they got a lot of deaths um, as, yeah. a, as a result, I guess. Um, so uh, another uh, question are, do, do you expect this is going to be an annual vaccine if, if we are lucky enough to get a, a vaccine? Is this, going to, is, it, is this the kind of virus that doesn't give lifelong immunity, do you think? I, I think the question of lifelong immunity is very open. Uh, what I can tell you, though, is that this is a big RNA viruses mutate a lot, but this is a big RNA virus, and it has a, a gene in it that helps repair, um, you know, uh, uh, replication errors in the in its RNA. Um, and so, for that reason, we may have we may see some stability uh, year to year. Again. Um, you know, raising lots of IgG to a, to a virus that attacks the respiratory epithelium, you're gonna have to get some IgA in there, uh, secretory IgA as, as well. And I see that as sort of the, the, the greater challenge, getting the right kind of antibody. Yeah, there's actually the right a, question, there's a question from an from a audience member from, from, uh, from Japan on IgA antibodies and yeah. whether they might have a role in this. Oh, yeah, big time, big time. Good, good luck raising them though. You know, almost need an inhaled vaccine like the uh, live attenuated influenza vaccine to get really good IgA coverage. Um, that that uh, physician also wonders about immunosuppressed people. Um, uh, might we have situations where you know HIV with low CD4 or solid organ transplants uh, might be eligible for convalescent plasma as a protective measure? Well, that's um, a good idea. We, we we've done. There's has been some work looking at HIV people with HIV who've gotten COVID-19, and they don't seem to do any better or worse than anybody else. Now, this is against, this is in Europe and the United States against a background of, you know, suppressed viral, uh, viral replication and recovering CD4 counts. I know there was at least one case report, Paul, about people with cancer uh, doing worse. Um, I mean, it's probably more a question of do they get the vaccine first? Right. Uh, uh, that rather than giving them, you know, immune plasma, which we don't even know if that works yet or not. The, the one small trial, uh, but a randomized trial didn't show an effect. And I've heard controversy about um, whether we should be developing um, uh, basically uh, antibodies to be given um, as IV for really sick people versus hyperimmune globulin in a sense um, for people like healthcare workers that might be exposed um, yeah. prevention. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great if we could. I mean, it's, you know, uh, a, a lot of the new therapeutics are based on monoclonal antibodies. And I'm sure those are being pursued as therapeutics uh, as, as well. If we get a therapeutic that works and it's not that expensive and 
anything with the word with the letters MAB at the end of it is going to be really expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you could potentially use it prophylactically. I mean, the places you'd prophylax would be nursing homes, right? right? Just like in an influenza outbreak, you can go in and give everybody oseltamivir for the rest of the influenza season. I mean, that would probably be the first place I'd prophylax to do pre-exposure rather than post-exposure prophylaxis. So uh, one uh, person asks about uh, rapid testing and uh, some, maybe some of the problems that we've heard from the Abbott, one of the Abbott assays, the rapid tests. Yeah. You want to talk about that just really briefly? Yeah, the rapid tests don't are, and, the, the, and I didn't never got to antigen testing. Antigen testing has a low, low sensitivity, like 50% right now. So there's probably not a lot of indication for it. Uh, unless it, unless I mis, misstated it or it's getting better. Uh, rapid, the problem with rapid tests is you can only do one test at a time. Uh, so while there may be indications for it, like in an ED or, you know, pre-op or something like that, uh, I don't see it as uh, really being a big substitute for, you know, more doing more volume testing. Got it, got it. Uh, another question is about the, the intersection between HIV and COVID-19. And uh, I can, I can say uh, having, I'm the editor of Jade's that there are a number of papers that are now coming out in, in a variety of journals that are going to be uh, talking more about that. I think it's fair to say, George, that it doesn't look like there's a, you know, HIV doesn't seem to protect or make things worse. Yeah. Um, just it's another infection. But that, that's my that's my reading as well. We're, we're running that series in San Francisco, too, so not no real evidence yet. So here here's another kind of policy crystal ball thing. Um, um, it's, we're opening up again, right? It's like uh, the Johnny Carson thing. You know? Yeah. <laughs> we're opening up again. Um, and we might see another spike. Um, we probably will. Um, yeah. Do you think the population would sit still for another round of, of uh, strict sheltering in place? You think, is it just impossible? I think it would have to be so surgically done, you know, like in one area of one city. Um, and it would take a lot of juice to be able to do that. Those are, those by the way, are called cordon sanitaire yeah. in, uh, in uh, public health. We basically seal off part of a city, which was done in Monrovia for Ebola, uh, but you'd have to have really rampant infection and it'd have to be really geographically circums uh, circumcised circumscribed. <laughs> That's okay, George. I've been doing that, well, those guidelines all day long, too. I, I think, um, George, looks to me as though we're at the, at the top of the hour, where I think we're meant to be um, uh, wrapping up. Um, let me ask my ISUSA uh, colleagues if that's the case. Should we bring this to an end? Yes, Dr. Volberti. That was, um, yes, that, that was the plan, Paul, but um, gosh, we've got so many questions in here. Um, if you both are willing on to, to stay on a bit, um, we can see that the we have a strong attendance still on. You're welcome to continue. Sure, keep going, Paul. It's fine. Okay, George, great. Um, so a friend of mine from NYU asks about um, immunosuppressed people. Um, uh, are they more likely to, um, to acquire this? Are they more likely to have a worse outcome? We talked a little bit about that, but you want to yeah, I don't think they're more like necessarily more likely to acquire it. I think that the, the, the kind of standard dictum is they're more likely to have to, to progress to a clinically recognizable disease and more severe disease. Um, and there were, again, more questions about the 
uh, we talked about it enough, I think, the, the, the possible lull in, in, in the fall. Um, talk a little bit more. You, you mentioned that the nasopharyngeal uh, swab as being not exactly pleasant. We've heard that um, uh, in the news. Um, are, are we seeing enough development of oral or, um, uh, or just regular throat yeah. swabs? Well, what you're going to see before that is, is anterior nary swabs, and just essentially swabbing the nostril. Um, Bonnie Maldonado at Stanford, who I do some of these big studies with, has a paper coming out um, where they were doing it on babies and didn't wake them up, um, just to give you an idea yeah. of how you know of how you know benign it can it can be. Um, so it's you know it's but you have to have the right size swabs and all that stuff. You know, if you're a, like, you know, the NBA is going to go back and go back and start playing and they're going to start swabbing people like crazy. You know, these guys are not going to be able to, you know, they're not going to stand for every two day nasal pharyngeal swabs. Yeah, so they're going to have to move to these things much more quickly. So here's a question from someone who um, was watching the news today uh, where there's um, speculation that this may in fact have, the virus may have appeared um, uh, quite a bit earlier than, uh, than we thought. What do, you, what do you think about that? Yep, 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 yep. This is a very cool article. Uh, and I can't remember who did it. It was, it was a group. It was a British study. In, in, it was a British study? I think it was an Imperial College study. I don't think you know because it was right. So it probably wasn't an Imperial College <laughs> um, They used, they looked at the, they had, you know, spy satellite uh, views of, of hospital parking lots in Wuhan and could, uh, and could look at, um, and looked at how the how full the parking lots were as a function of time, and then also looked at social media, uh, or it you know hits for things like diarrhea on the Chinese language uh, uh, um, internet, and they think it probably went up roughly in November. Uh, and the head of the Chinese CDC has said that the the wet market in Guangzhou was in just a you know that was just sort of a, a kind of one part of this that wasn't the the kind of primary event. Right. So it looks like it was circulating a little earlier. I wouldn't give it much though before early November. Okay, great. This has still been a remark. Fast in terms of how much we learned over a period of time, but this has been, uh, this has been stunning. Um, and let's just hope that some of the treatments to prevent the really bad outcomes uh, work I think that's yeah, and, and I think one of the really interesting things Paul is this whole use of preprints which right. you know which has burned a couple of journals yep, <laughs> yep. of, of note um, but it's I'd never really even experienced those before maybe they're more common in in basic science but in epidemiology they're really not used and, yeah. and public health are not used and it was it's so I uh, you know somehow we're having to like, you know peer referee every single thing we, we read yeah. In essence, yeah. I think George will bring this to a close. We've we've addressed a number of the questions. I was able to sneak in a couple of my own, unbeknownst to <laughs> to the audience. Um, you, you've been a you've been a great um, uh, uh, assistant with this. It's been spectacular, and I think I have um, a few slides to show. See if my colleagues can do it. Um, uh, and and. George, don't leave yet because I do want to thank you again before we before we hang it up. But um, we have um, ISUSA is going to be doing more of these, um, and some of them will 
uh, addressed topics that we didn't get so much into today. Uh, 